0: Hi, I'm Gavin Givannoni, Professor of Neurology at uh, Barts and London School of Medicine and Dentistry, and I'm talking to you today in this MS Selfie podcast about the ethics of teriflunomide controlled phase 3 MS trials. Um, An issue has risen that we are planning a, a trial of a new agent. It's the anti-CD40 ligand uh, or Frexalimab, and we um, uh, I raised it with several of my colleagues, um, um, that we'd like to do a trial, but the and it have to be an active comparator because it's not ethical to do placebo-controlled trials now that we have licensed therapies. And the uh, active comparator is likely to be um, tariquidar. And um, I was told that it's unethical because uh, we are using very little tariquidar anymore, and because it's um, not that effective in inverted commas, and we should be doing a different type of study with a different comparator. Um, this p- particular debate, I think, reminds me of the one we had back in the uh, noughties when um, we had interferon beta and acetate uh, licensed. And at that time, many commentators raised the issue of any future trials should not be against placebo, but against these comparators. At that time, uh, we pushed back on that because, (laughs) first of all, there wasn't equity. In other words, not everybody had access to injectable therapies because they were considered to be very expensive, and there were very strict guidelines on who could get them, and some countries didn't have them. And also, some people were needle phobic and wouldn't agree to injectable therapy, so we thought we could still do studies in people that were needle phobic, people who didn't have access to treatments, and people uh, who didn't uh, feel that those therapies were worthwhile. And if we didn't do that, we probably would have had a major delay in the next wave of MS therapies. So based on placebo-controlled trials, we got nataluzumab, tisabri, fingolimod, which is called gelenia, or cladrimine or, or mavenclad, fumarate, tecfidera, even teriflunamide, or baggio, and dicluzumab, uh, all done against placebo. So we managed to license the next uh, Crop of therapies uh, based on placebo controlled trials, despite having interferon beta and glatiramer acid around. Um, then, once uh, this next transfer therapies became freely available, uh, particularly the oral therapies, um, phase three trials then shifted away from placebo controlled and we started, to do, we started to compare them to injectables. And the go to injectable back in the, in, uh, you know, 15 years ago was interferon beta because that was considered standard of care. And alumtuzumab, ocrelizumab, and the next generation uh, S1P modulator, azinomod, were all compared against interferon beta. Subsequently, it became increasingly difficult to justify an injectable comparator. And, when, and the MS community went to an oral, and teriflunomide basically supplanted interferon beta as the most acceptable active comparator. And drugs like penicillimide uh, and the new anti-CD20s of and oblituximab were all compared against teriflunomide. And more recently, we have the large PTK inhibitor program. So these are a new generation of a new th- a therapy that they're all currently running at the moment against uh, teriflunomide as an active comparator. The only exception is fenibrutinib, Uh, the fenibrutinib primary progressive trial with active comparator is ocrelizumab, and the reason for that is because ocrelizumab is the only licensed therapy for primary progressive MS, and hence it's considered standard of care for PPMS. However, in the uh, fenibrutinib relapsing-remitting trials, it's uh, mind it's active comparator. So the question we have to ask ourselves: Have we really lost equipoise? Uh, I think there's a rising chorus of voices calling uh, for teriflunomide to be replaced as a go-to comparator. And I, I already said to you it's based on the assumption that it's less uh, less effective, has not been used, uh, and I think that uh, um, it's. I don't think it's necessarily uh, unethical. Um, and I think we as an MS community can put in place provisions uh, in trials uh, to address uh, uh, these commentators' concerns. You know, I think the premise also that we've lost equipoise based on uh, teriflunamide's effectiveness is also a misinterpretation of the data because I think teriflunamide works in a very interesting way as it is modifying therapy. Now I must point out that my attitude has changed. You know, I, when teriflunomide was first launched in the United Kingdom, I was never impressed uh, with it as a DMT. Uh, at that time, you know, in my interpretation of the data was its impact on relapses and MRI activity were moderate, and the monitoring requirements were kind of overwhelming. You know, we didn't have um, a free program in the community, so we had to set up our own pharmacovigilance, and we had to do liver function tests every two weeks for the first six months. Now, this requirement has now changed, so we only have to do it monthly for the first six months, and then regularly after that, and we do it six to 12 monthly, depending on how long the patient's been on the drug. So the monitoring requirements are much less onerous now. Now, clearly, uh, another issue is terapulamide is teratogenic. In other words, it can cause or potentially cause fetal malformations. Therefore, it can't be used uh, in women wanting to fall pregnant or during pregnancy. And this will remain a problem. This is not going to go away. However, in uh, clinical trials, this is a blanket issue for all new DMTs being tested in phase 3 trials. So, you know, in a clinical trial setting, nobody's allowed to fall pregnant. They all have to be on contraception or double contraception. So this is an issue not only for the new therapy being compared to teriflinamide, but for both arms of the trial. Um, The other... The um, big issue we found when teriflunamide was launched is that it came with this label that it caused hair loss, but it's not hair loss, it's just hair thinning, and the hair thinning is transient. And my experience with this now is that it's not a major issue. It's also a problem with other MS disease modifying therapies, it's not unique to teriflunamide. And once patients realize that it doesn't cause hair loss or lapletia, but only transient hair thinning, they seem more accepting of the side effects. So I think that's not a, a, an issue. And clearly, if it was an issue, we wouldn't have had all these uh, phase three uh, trials running uh, with people in them um, if teriflunomide caused the major side effect that nobody would, would find acceptable. How about- you know, as I've got into the smoldering MS concept, I've changed my mind about teriflunomide. I think it's really underrated uh, as a DMT, and I predict, you know, in the future, it's going to become one of our most used disease-modifying therapies. You know, I think once we understand its alternative, its alternate mode of action, um, and we understand its effectiveness on smoldering MS, you know, or smoldering-associated worsening, I think we'll use it uh, much more often. And I think there are several reasons for this. Uh, I think the, the main reason is that teriflunomide is much more effective as a DMT than we realize. As we look at the old data, uh, we go beyond focal inflammation. I'm talking about the impact on relapses and MRI ter- activity. Teriflunomide is much more effective than we would expect. Um, so it dissociates um, its impact on disability progression and end organ damage, brain volume loss, from its impact on relapses and MRI activity. So just to give you an example, in the recent head-to-head studies of the anti-CD20s, the new, the new generation ones, of atumumab and um against teriflunomide, both these agents were superior to teriflunomide in inhibiting relapses in MRI activity. But they didn't show any difference in uh, brain volume loss. They, they were parallel. And they, their impact on disability progression was tiny relative to teriflunomide. Uh, even ublituximab didn't reach clinical significance. So in other words, there was no real difference between People randomised to oplatuzumab oh, versus teriflunomide in disability progression. So uh, I think we have to keep that in, keep that in mind um, when when considering teriflunomide. We have to think beyond its uh, average you know, third reduction in relapses um, and its moderate impact on MRI activity of about 70%, and think about the end organ disability progression, which is probably what is causing multiple sclerosis and the disability. You know, I have recently highlighted, um, you know, on ms and many other platforms that relapses and focal MRI activity are not MS. They're likely to be the immune system's response to what's causing MS, but they are not the disease. And this is based on many different observations. Uh, And teriflutamide's dissociation of its effect on relapses and MRI activity versus disability worsening and brain volume loss is one of the arguments I make that relapses and focal MRI activity are not MS. Anyway, this is uh, not widely accepted um, and it took me a long time to understand this position. Another thing that's very different to teriflunomide compared to all the other DMTs is that it seems to be much more effective as a switch agent, in other words, when you second, or third or fourth line compared to when you use it in naive patients. And this was actually a consistent finding across quite a few of the teriflunamide uh, trials. Uh, and this is the only DMT that does it. Almost all other, DMT, almost all other, all other DMTs work better when used first line. And so this is telling us there must be something different about the mode of action of uh, uh when used second, third, or fourth line. And this is important for trials because we're now seeing in phase three trials that most subjects volunteering are not naive, they're not newly diagnosed patients, but they've come off other disease-modifying therapies. So therefore, in a clinical trial scenario, the average effect of teriflunomide is likely to be much better than it was in the, uh, you know, the phase three original program. So the drug, in other words, has got more effective or will be more effective in clinical trials, and this is something that needs to be communicated to the MS community. It's also different um, in terms of its impact on memory B cells. So we've made the argument that almost all our disease-modifying therapies either reduce or block trafficking of memory B cells into the central nervous system. And we argue that the memory B cell is the cell where EBV resides, and that's how, how these drugs are working. Now, teriflunomide has no major impact on memory B cell numbers or trafficking. Uh, and so it must be working in a different way. Uh, and we've it has emerged um, uh, that teriflunamide is a potent antiviral, uh, pretty much a pan-antiviral. It works against many different viruses, including the herpes viruses and EBV. And we actually showed in a recent study that it was able to reduce Epstein-Barr virus shedding in the saliva, uh, showing that it has actually uh, EBV, uh, anti-EBV activity. This observation is not unique to teriflunamide, but it works in terms of the class. So, um, Teriflunamide actually inhibits an enzyme called dihydroorotate auritate dehydrogenase, and there are other drugs in that class. One of them is leflunomide, which is actually a prodrug, it gets converted into teriflunamide. Another one is vidaflutamus, which is currently in phase um, three, the multiple sclerosis. And then there's this drug called Aslan 003, uh, which is also a, a new generation uh, DHODHI inhibitor. So, you know, I think we need to. Uh, keep our minds open that teriflunomide may be working in MS, not necessarily as an anti-inflammatory, okay, but it's working as an antiviral. Um, so I actually think you know the future of teriflunomide in this class of drugs is that it w- it will be used second or third line, particularly as in a maintenance therapy after induction with say a B cell depleting agent. So people who've been on an anti-CD20 therapy, ocrelizumab, oputumumab, or blutuximab, or even rituximab, will, who are running into problems with hypogammaglobulinemia, anemia, recurrent infections, poor vaccine responses, you know, will come off uh, the anti-CD20 therapy and go on to um, teriflunumab. Now, I think this is important because I've, I've hypothesized that, um, I've, I've hypothesized in the, in the recent past that if you deplete memory B cells, and then you allow reconstitution of the B-cell compartment in the presence of an antiviral. You may stop the new cells being reinfected with EBV. And this underpins the uh, study design I call the ITERI study, where we uh, switch patients from ocrelizumab onto Teriflunomide, uh, Mainly as a safety uh, initiative, but also I, I suspect will be much more effective uh, in this setting. Now, the other thing that we mustn't forget, terifritamide is about to become a very low-cost drug. It's either off-patent or will come off-patent in many countries. And because it's a small molecule, its price will plummet by more than 90%. I've already been told in the U.S. where it's off-patent that it is now the cheapest disease-modifying therapy in the United States. And we shouldn't ignore that because you know people like me who want to do investigator-led studies funded by uh, funding agencies um, if a, a, a off patent generic is going to be much easier to fund uh, interesting studies using that as a comparator than having to use a high cost uh, comparator that's not off patent so it will actually uh, um, allow more frictionless investigator led studies to be done anyway even if it is on patent and you live in a resource poor environment you know you could st- uh, substitute teriflunomide with its prodrug leflunomide which has been licensed since the late 90s for rheumatoid arthritis. It's off patent, it's available as a generic, and is very, very cheap. Um, it's li- literally two orders of magnitude uh, cheaper than the licensed um, Obagio, which is the uh, branded uh, product. And so um, there's a direct conversion. So uh, 20 milligrams of leflunomide gets converted to, seven, uh, to 14 milligrams, the big dose of, uh, of teriflunamide in the body. Uh, or 10 milligrams gets converted to 7 milligrams. There are two licensed doses in the U.S. at least for teriflunomide: 14 or 7. So, um, you know, you don't have to pay. If you're having to pay out of pocket, you don't have to pay so much. Just get your neurologist or your healthcare professional to s- switch out from terifluenamide to leflunomide. Leflunomide is teriflunomide. It just gets broken down and metabolized into teriflunomide, so it works in exactly the same way. Um, I know many neurologists feel uncomfortable prescribing leflunamide, but they must look at the signs, you know, and maybe they just need a little nudge from you uh, to get onto a cheaper drug. Now, a lot of the people who find leflunamide controlled trials has been unethical, say we need another active comparator. So one of the um, um, people I've been talking to um, has suggested that we uh, switch from teriflunomide to the oral fumarates, you know, either dimethyl fumarate or diroximal fumarate. Now, these two are not ideal comparators. Uh, they're first of all taken uh, twice daily, which makes it difficult for adherence, <clears throat> but they're also associated with flushing and gastrointestinal side effects. And, and the, they're quite large tablets. So when you want to make a placebo, uh, exactly a matching placebo, you have to recover them and the tablets will get larger. So there are a lot of issues around these two. Um, and also the assumption that dimethylfumarate uh, DMF, is more effective than teriflunomide is probably wrong. You know, there's been recent uh, real life data co- uh, coming out showing you that they are equivalent, at least in terms of annualized relapse rates. So, um, and i put the paper at the end of the uh, uh, newsletter. You can read it if you want, um, uh, showing that in the real-life environment, these two agents are probably not out of sync with each other. And actually, when you do a network analysis, they are literally, and look at disability progression, they are almost identical to, uh, to each other uh, in terms of its effective, effectiveness. Now, what about the S1P modulators? Um, these are the fingolimod, uh, ozanimod, penicimid. Panos- <laughs> I think they are difficult simply because you have to de-risk the cardiovascular side and then maybe first dose monitoring. Um, they potentially could be done, but um, you, know, then you also have to include OCT to monitor for um, or, um, you know, macular edema, and there's all those issues that go into the trial design and make it more difficult. Um, so it is a positive, but I just don't think also when you do network analysis that the uh, S1P modulators are much more effective than teriflunomide. I think when it comes to uh, uh, smoldering MS and the, the impact on disability progression and brain volume loss, they kind of bat in the same zone. So I can't see why switching from teriflunomide to the uh, S1P modulators addresses this ethical issue. It's the same issue. Now, what about going to the more effective therapies, the injectable monoclonals or the infusion monoclonals? Um, I think you can, but it's going to be very difficult to show a, a treatment effect uh, on relapses or disability progression without having incredibly large numbers of patients in very long studies. So it's not going to be able to show a superiority uh, you know, over a meaningful time period, which makes it financially non-viable. Pharmaceutical companies just do not have bottomless pits of money to invest in these types of trials. So one of the suggestions was why don't you do a non-inferiority or equivalence study but again um, that still requires large numbers of patients in each group and I'm not sure any pharmaceutical company likes this idea of a non-inferiority equivalence uh, study and it's also quite risky from a, re- a regulatory perspective because the regulators would you know, have to get behind this <clears throat> um, and there are a whole lot of other issues which I'll have to go into in a separate MS Selfie post in the future around um, uh, non-superiority uh, or um, equivalent studies that can't be addressed in much detail in this particular newsletter. So I actually, I actually think we need to step back and say, do we really think it's unethical to randomize somebody to a, a, a terifrinomide-controlled trial? This is our only option at the moment. Uh, to get a meaningful result in a a short period of time with a a suitable trial. Um, And I think maybe we need to ask ethics committees. So there are ways of de-risking things. So the one thing you can do, for example, is have weighted randomization. So more people go on to the new agent versus terifrinamide, say a two-to-one ratio. You could also have um, uh, an exit strategy. So when somebody hits the trial endpoint, they confirm disability progression, they then unblinded, or taken out of the trial and put on uh, open label. And that's happening more and more. Another thing is actually to reduce the number of participants on the terifluenomide arm by um, com- um, using the control arms of the other trials that are running at the moment. And that would require pharmaceutical companies to collaborate with each other, and I'm not sure they would do that. Um, so this idea of borrowing placebo controls, subjects or comparator groups from other trials kind of underpins the platform studies that happen in oncology. Um, so, on, so often when you do these adaptive design studies with multiple arms, the one comparator group acts as the comparator group for the subsequent arms. So it's, I mean, it's a, a nice idea. Um, uh, and I have no idea if the various competing pharmaceutical companies are prepared to give uh, or you know, allow you to borrow their control arms it does mean the, the, the uh, criteria for recruitment for the trials have to be identical to be honest with you um, and there are other issues from a statistical perspective that will have to be addressed but that is one option as well so in other words instead of having a one to two you can have a one to six ratio okay but when you do the analysis there will be say a one to two analysis because some of the comparative will come from other trials We don't we don't know about that <clears throat> And then the other thing is, you know, we mustn't forget that a rich world view doesn't necessarily address the reality on the ground. In many countries, many people with multiple sclerosis can't afford DMTs um, because their country doesn't have a socialized healthcare system, or they are uninsured. uh, And so they're not on disease-modifying treatments. Therefore, participating in a clinical trial allows them access to DMT. So the question we have to ask ourselves been randomized to teriophrinamide in a clinical trial could be considered better than not being on a DMT at all. Uh, and it's well known that people with multiple sclerosis who participate in clinical trials do better on average than people who don't participate in trials. And we think this is not only in MS, this is across many disease areas. And we think this is because people who are participating in clinical trials get better care. And maybe the fact that they are doing something proactive you know, changes the way the biology of the disease is. Um, so we know that placebo effects are real, uh, and so comparator effects are real, and that's potentially why um, uh, people do well in clinical trials. So, you know, should we deny these people access to treatment because uh, we in high-income countries uh, where we have universal healthcare systems uh, I think randomizing them to is unethical? I think we need to ask that question. Um and the other issue is if we don't, if we think this is unethical, and we we don't have a route forward, and then how are we going to develop new therapies? How are we going to cure MS? How are we going to improve on the current uh, therapies we have? How are we going to address PIRA, for example, progression-independent relapse activity, or smoldering MS? So we really have to um, um, uh, debate this issue very, very carefully. Anyway, so I think we do need a wider discussion uh, and we need to explore the various options uh, and discuss the de-risking strategies with people with the disease. Maybe we should talk to their family members, their spouses, maybe organizations representing people with multiple sclerosis, the MS charities, get statisticians involved, ethicists, even ethics committees and have a wider debate. Uh, before we take the moral high ground and say that terflunomide you know like like placebo or uh, an interferon in the past one are uh, unethical so um if you are interested please um I've, I've put up another link to a short twenty second survey just two two questions and you can leave some comments um, and and um, the simple question do you think we have lost equipoise in other words is it unethical to randomize somebody with ms? to as part of a phase of a three clinical trial. That's what we need to know. Anyway, um, I appreciate your feedback. And uh, as always, if you want to have a wider discussion, use the leave a comment button. Um, um, where, where, where we have the debating open. If you, if you leave the comment in the uh, survey, then it's not open. It's, I, it's, I'm, I'm the only person who sees it. Um, I will bring those comments uh, you know to light once the survey is closed. And if you haven't yet, and you can afford to, please become a paying subscriber. And the more, the more I have, the better it is for me from a stress perspective uh, in funding the uh, MSLF microsite, uh, which has been run by a, a very professional medical writer and a web designer. Thank you.